Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good to see you all. Uh, before we launch in today um, with the word that the Lord has for us, uh, yesterday from 10 to about 3, uh, we had a big deep clean at the church. We've been talking about that the past couple weeks. And um, we had over 30 people show up here yesterday, put in their blood, their sweat, their tears. So it's all worked into the carpet now, which is nice. Um, but I just, uh, really quick, I want to invite all of those people that, that showed up yesterday to help out to stand uh, so you can be recognized and just thank these people so much um, for their incredible service. Um, as you go around, you'll see that we, we've painted, uh, you know, chips in the wall and we filled in holes. Um, all the rooms in the back are rearranged and they look beautiful. Um, the greenhouse, the kids' ministry, if you ever get a chance to go in there, they redid everything. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, and I just thank you so much for that. I think, you know, part of the, the, the gift... <laughs> yeah. That's why that wall looks so good. Ezra actually is is training in this, so it's pretty amazing. But, um, you know, one of the things that the Lord has done is he's given us a house and, and to have this responsibility for our home, to create a place for us to meet with God, to, to meet with one another, to welcome in the stranger. Um, that's what this is all about. And I commend you all for taking that time to come in and to help out um, the places more beautiful because of it. And I think it's going to help us to continue to live out our mission. So I'm going to pray. We're going to jump right into what the Lord has for us uh, this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we testify to the truth that you're here, that you're with us. Lord, I love even in that new song that we were singing that even if we just have the smallest glimpse, it's enough. It becomes this little, almost like this anchor moment or this vision that kind of helps us to ground ourselves in your presence, even if we don't necessarily feel it or we don't understand it, to say there's enough there for me to continue to show up, to be patient, to wait on you, to reveal yourself more fully uh, from moment to moment. And that's why we're here, God. We want to know you more. And so, Lord, I pray right now that you would uh, send your Holy Spirit to alight upon each one of us, to open our minds to understand, to open our hearts uh, to affection, to receive love, um, to open our spirits, to, to connect with you, to commune with you, that every part of who we are would be fully present in this moment. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're in this series called Listening to the Voice of God, and what we've done up until this point is kind of exploring the different ways in which God speaks, kind of demythologizing the whole process, that it's, it's not just this one way where, you know, the clouds part and, and a mighty voice that sounds like Charlton Heston or Morgan Freeman kind of comes out of the sky, and that's what it means for God to speak, and that there's a, a rarefied few that are capable of hearing his voice, but that we are all capable because we are all worthy. And the beautiful thing is that we explored last week as we kind of recapped each of the ways that God speaks is that each of us have a personal language with God. 
It's just some combination of all of these different ways that he speaks. And the more that we can hone in on the specific ways that God speaks to us, the more we can offer that to one another. And we're all strengthened together because we recognize this is about us pursuing God together. It's not about uniformity. It's not about us all doing it the same way and, and, and having the same even attitude towards God, but it's about us all learning more and more. How have we been crafted to hear his voice? And then how do we respond? And so the second half of this series is going to focus a little bit more on our posture. We know that God speaks in all of these different ways, um, but there are things that we can do to position ourselves to be able to hear I think that's actually the bigger problem. It's not that we don't believe that God speaks all the time. It's that we're not putting ourselves actively in positions that enable us to hear his voice. And so that's really what we're going to be uh, looking at. And today I'm going to be talking about silence, stillness, and solitude, which is really neat. My first sermon here as pastor of the church in 2013 was about silence. And I said at that point, um, it's a dramatic irony to ask an Irishman to talk about silence Uh, So now I'm going to say it's a dramatic irony to ask an American to talk about stillness. (laughs) Um, And I think this is so important. It's the foundational, when we ask that question, how do we position ourselves to listen to God's voice? I think the foundation always comes down to this idea of, of something around silence, stillness, and solitude, recognizing that those are all kind of uh, very similar ideas that have a different source in who we are as human beings, but have this commonality to them. So I want to begin here. I believe that we are deftly afraid of silence, stillness, and solitude. I think we're terrified of it. Um, There's this really beautiful little psalm, Psalm 131. Uh, It's only three lines long, and I want to show this to you. You can close your eyes as as I read this, or you can just follow along on the screen. Whatever's more comfortable with you. It's just very short, um, but there's so much goodness packed into it. The psalmist says this, My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. There's this beautiful kind of two halves to this psalm. We can, you, actually, you can just leave it up so people can see this. That in the, in the beginning that the, the psalmist is recognizing out of a position of humility, there are things in this life that are capable of distracting me, of overwhelming me, of taking me away from your presence. But I recognize, Lord, that I need a posture of humility. That I need to recognize what I'm capable of and what I'm actually incapable of in terms of holding the weight of the world around me. And so the psalmist is choosing to take this position like a small child to come before the Lord and to say, my posture is not to carry the weight of the world on my shoulders, but actually to come to you, to calm myself, to quiet myself in your presence, to hand myself over to you and to give you quiet consent to do whatever it is that you want to do in the moment, to speak whatever you want to speak in the moment. And then the final piece is that he admonishes his people, Israel, just as he admonishes us, put our hope in the Lord. I think that's intimately tied into this idea of the posture that we have. Do we put our hope in him or do we continue to allow ourselves to be overwhelmed uh, by our circumstances? 
And so we are deathly afraid of silence, stillness, and solitude. I think if we're honest, most of us would recognize that we entertain ourselves out of the depth of life, right? I remember, um, Cole, what was the, the, Joyce, the James Joyce uh, play that you did a couple years ago? The Dead, and it's part of the Dubliners, right? And there was this amazing line in it that spoke of how so many of us kind of skip across the surface of life as a stone would skip across the surface of a pond. And we kind of live our lives there where we're, we're living into our shallow selves, it's kind of extra bits of who we are that are not the true core of our nature, but rather are these, these surfacey ideas of who we believe that we are or what we've been called to do. And I believe this is why television is always better than church. If our priorities are to entertain ourselves out of the depth of life, it is always a better idea for you to stay home and watch television than it is for you to come to church. And in fact, the problem is that a lot of times that's our expectation. We want to entertain ourselves. We want to, we want to placate our surface selves. And so we come to church with those expectations that we're here to be entertained, which is really to say we're here to be distracted. We're here to be motivated. We're here to be stimulated. And the problem is that the modern church often tries to give us exactly what it is that we want. And it creates this cycle that I'm skipping across the surface of life, looking for bright, shiny baubles that can distract me from going down deep. And we enter into communities that say, yes, that is exactly why we're here, and that's exactly what we're meant to do. And many of you who are in here that are in varying degrees of recovering from addiction, you know that the, 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 one of the main issues with addiction is that you're never content with what you have in the moment. It always becomes about a little bit more. And so when we entertain ourselves out of the depth of life, especially when it comes to the Christian life, 30 cc's of God are pretty good from week to week, but then what happens by week two or three? We need 35 cc's. We need a little bit more. Or else we're just disappointed. Because what's really happening underneath is we're saying, I need more and more distraction. I need more and more bright and shiny to keep myself actively from going down deep. And this is the danger of what I prefer to call religiosity over religion, is doing the trappings of the Christian life in order to prevent ourselves from engaging within the depths of who we are with the truth of who God actually is. And we're definitely afraid of silence and stillness and solitude then because those things tell us a very different story about what our priorities are called to be. I think in a very literal way, practicing silence and stillness and solitude is us practicing death. And why do we distract ourselves out of the depth of life? Because we're very afraid of death. Should I just change mics? Okay, no problem. See, even that moment, we need to fill in the gaps, right? We need sound. We need something that's going to distract us, that's going to give us a reason to be here. But silence and stillness and death are us literally practicing death. Instead of choosing to run and hide from death, to step into it. Which is really us saying we're giving ourselves content, consent. We're giving ourselves over. We're letting go of control. Because our desire to be stimulated is our desire to control the narrative. And I swear, at some point, he's just going to become the patron saint of our community. But the blessed Henry Nouwen, he writes this, Silence is the discipline that helps us go beyond the entertainment quality of our lives. Silence is the discipline 
that helps us to go beyond the entertainment quality of our lives. For us to practice death now is to choose to face it, maybe not without fear, but with the courage that enables us to pass into something, to choose into the deep parts of life that if we're honest, we'd rather just kind of skip across the surface in order to entertain ourselves, to convince ourselves that we are something that we're not. And so we clear the space for God to speak to our deepest selves in quiet consent. And this is, this is the language that I want to offer you this morning that kind of envelops stillness and silence and solitude is quiet consent. I was trying to think, what is, what is a word or a phrase that kind of holds all of those things together? And in a moment, I'm just going to talk about the differences between them. But the commonality is that there is a quietness to us and a consent. It's us giving up control. It's us giving up all of our little addictions and our little personality quirks that are trying to, to fill in the space and just letting the space exist, letting the gaps be there. Because the problem, if we're honest, is that all of our surface self stuff, it just clutters the narrative. There's this really great Radiohead song from the 90s where Tom York just calls it the radiator buzz of life. You know, it's that little sound that's always in the background that just fills in the space that we recognize that we're not truly capable of experiencing the silence of life. And all the noise that we incorporate into our lives to distract us clutters the narrative. It prevents us from seeing who we really are. And that often leads us into these extremes when we feel overwhelmed by the reality of life, or when we're confronted with the reality of death, or when we recognize the need to go a little bit deeper. And in one extreme, we can overprotect, we can run away, we can hide, and we can shut ourselves off. This is the plight of the introvert, to pull away so far from life that we're no longer living a life, we're merely trying to survive. Or, in panic, we cling too tightly we cling too tightly to our patterns, our addictions to other people. This is the plight of the extrovert, that we launch into life without thinking it. It becomes compulsive to grab whatever we can to distract us and to keep us from facing the reality of our own lives. But the idea of quiet consent is us giving up controlling the narrative, to stop trying to manage the floodgates of input and output, to give up on, on this idea that we are strong and we're capable. I love this, this new idea of speaking of sin. Is Sin is when we overdo our strengths. When we take it upon ourselves even more to try to control ourselves, to do what's right. And that leads us even further from God. And so what's the difference between silence and stillness and solitude? I believe it really comes down to uh, our centers of intelligence. You know, each of us as human beings, we have these three centers of intelligence, uh, our mind, our heart, and our body. And all of those are working all the time within each one of us, but one of them is dominant in each one of you. Like it's kind of your first instinctual attitude towards the world, that perhaps first you're a kind of person that you perceive it through your thinking. You're thinking first, your brain, your kind of brain first, that's how you're taking in information around the world. Uh, but some of you, your, your, your first move is through the heart, that you perceive the world through feeling, through emotion. And that's your primary way of maneuvering through the world. And finally, some of you, your body people, your gut people, your instinctual people, that you take in the world almost kind of geographically. 
And it's out of those centers of intelligence that you begin to make assumptions about how the world works or how other people work or who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do. And so we can recognize then when we understand what our center of intelligence is, what is this particular mode of quiet consent that we're called to live into? And so I believe silence is the quiet consent of the mind, stillness is the quiet consent of the body, and solitude is the quiet consent of the heart. And I think we're all called to practice all of those, but I think a really good discipline is when you begin to understand what's the primary way that I take in the world, then I can understand the specific form of quiet consent that I'm called to live into. Now, the problem with the three of these is that there is a counterfeit version of these things. Sometimes it's very counterintuitive for us to do this because of that distraction narrative, but sometimes we do the counterfeit version of it and we think that we're practicing silence or stillness or solitude, but we're doing something that, that, that kind of falls short. So I believe the counterfeit of silence is distraction or analysis paralysis, where we kind of give ourselves over and we let somebody else, some other voice, just do all the thinking, where we get stuck in these really negative um, cycles of thinking within our own head, that the more we think, the more we feel trapped, and the more we feel trapped, the more we start thinking, and we kind of, it's like the hamster on the wheel, we're just kind of stuck, but we're not really going anywhere. Um, the counterfeit for stillness um, is sloth. We don't use that word a whole lot, but we do see it in scripture. Um, in one of the Proverbs, it says, like a door on its hinges, the slothful man turns over in his bed. You know? And so we don't know what to do when it comes to stillness. Because sloth is not actually stillness, because it's us taking ourselves out of the game. And quiet consent is actually really about being attentive and fully present. And the counterfeit of each of these things is where we remove ourselves from being present to the moment. Now, I grew up in a household where, you know, weekdays were just opportunities to do even more. There's lots of activities. Like, I remember several times growing up and you just sit down with that good book and you're just getting ready to watch, uh, you know, New Kids on the Block or whatever on TV. That's the 90s is when I grew up. And as soon as you sit down, Ryan, clean your room. Come on. This was my one moment, you know. And it was like, you know, the days off were just opportunities to do more stuff. And I think that's why I actually inherited a counterfeit form of stillness. I'm really good at sloth. I'm really good at doing nothing. But not in a way that I'm more present to my own life, but I recognize that I've actually lost the past two or three hours. Like they don't exist for me anymore. And I'm living half a timeline in that. And so you can see that either we participate in a counterfeit version of these things or they're totally alien ideas to us. And the third, solitude. I think the counterfeit of solitude is isolation. And what is isolation? Isolation is when we remove ourselves from the presence of others with a closed off heart. And that one's gonna be really tricky for us to maneuver today. We think that we're choosing into solitude, but what we're actually choosing is isolation because what we're doing is we're closing off our hearts to God, to other people, and to ourselves. And so we, we cannot accept on the surface that we are any good at any of these because it's very likely that we're actually participating in counterfeit versions of quiet consent. And the counterfeit versions are still motivated by that desire to control the narrative, that we're still in charge. Sloth is saying, I'm still in charge of not doing anything. 
I'm just going to protect myself from my own life by just not living it. Isolation is saying, I'm going to continue to protect myself and I'm still in charge of the narrative by just, just choosing to cut myself off from God and from other people. And that counterfeit silence and distraction is just saying, I'm going to choose to cut myself off to presence and I'm just going to live inside of my own brain and just let it run and run and run until I'm exhausted. And it's important that we recognize that we're actually called to move into healthy disciplines of silence and stillness and solitude to find what it is that we're actually called to find there. Because once we've disciplined ourselves to rhythms of quiet consent, we can develop an attentiveness to God's voice in and around us. It's through those disciplines that we're actually creating the fertile soil for us to be able to hear God speak to us. And this is why it's so hard. I think this is why we oftentimes run from silence and stillness and solitude and settle for the counterfeits or just continue to distract ourselves out of the moment. Because the first thing that you hear when you practice quiet consent are the voices of darkness within you. Okay, I promise you, let's just, we'll get that right off the table right now. The first thing that you're going to hear when it comes to quiet consent, those are the voices of darkness. And what are those voices? They're voices of jealousy, they're voices of shame, they're voices of fear, of anger, of despair. Those are the first things that are going to well up within you when you stop distracting yourself out of a de the depth of life. And at first, they're going to be deafening. Y'all came to be inspired this morning, didn't you? I look, 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 looking at your faces and I'm like, do we need to change? Do we just need to pick a different psalm maybe? <laughs> we do have the victory, but this is how we get it, okay? Those voices of darkness within you, they're going to be deafening at first. I promise you, all right? But guess what? The longer that you sit with those voices of darkness within you and you let them run, run themselves out, they're going to start getting quieter and quieter and quieter. And before long, you're going to be realize that there's nothing really behind them. There is no real power or authority behind those voices of darkness within you that speak to you about shame and guilt and regret and jealousy and anger and fear, all of these different kinds of emotions. They will gradually lose their power over time. And as the voices of darkness begin to lose their power, eventually you're going to begin to hear the voice of light within you. And it's going to be a still, small voice at first. You know, we have this, this story of Ezekiel kind of running away into the mountains and, and the word of the Lord comes to him and says, God is going to come by the, the mountain and he's going to speak to you. And he goes out and there's an earthquake and God doesn't speak and there's a big thunderstorm and God doesn't speak. And then it says, and then a still small voice came along. And I think, is that not our patterns when it comes to quiet consent? Is that when we make ourselves attentive and we position ourselves, say, okay, God, I'm going to choose into this moment to allow you to speak. First of all, all the earthquakes come and all the fires come and all the noise starts coming and we're getting overwhelmed by it. But we allow those things to pass by and eventually we hear the still small voice coming from within us. And maybe it doesn't sound like a very authoritative voice because it's not as loud as the other voices. But when we really begin to tune in and listen to what that voice is saying, it begins to gradually grow in power. And this is the voice that speaks over us, love and grace. 
This is the voice that begins to speak over us, our true nature, our true identity, speaking to the deepest parts of who we are and calling that up out of the ether. And do we not see this kind of lifestyle of stillness and silence and solitude practiced in the story of Jesus? He practiced all of these things constantly throughout his life to be reminded of his own belovedness. Jesus had to put himself in a position to come back to hear the Father speaking over him his true identity because that was what empowered him to continue on with the mission that God had called him to. And so frequently in Jesus' life, we see him either preemptively taking steps to create space for God to speak so that he could go out and love others well, or recognizing in the moment because of his emotional capacity that he needed to step away and re-engage with God so that he could be shored up in his belovedness. And so just a couple examples. In Mark 1, 35, uh, we find this very brief little uh, vignette that speaks to how Jesus preemptively practiced stillness and silence and solitude. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they explained, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the near my villages, so I can preach there also. That's why I have come. So he traveled through Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. And so this is just an example of many that Jesus didn't just wait until he was overwhelmed. He didn't wait until he was like collapsing in an emotional heat before he did what was right. You know, we've, we've mentioned little bits and pieces about self-care, and I'm working on some stuff right now, but that's one of the first things I want to say, is prevention not better than cure, right? When we are disciplined, like Jesus was, to take the time to position ourselves before the Lord, to hear his voice, to hear him reminding us that we are the beloved, it gives us the confidence to be able to engage with the world and do what he's called us to do. And the second story we find in Mark and in Matthew, uh, we call it Jesus' uh, feeding of the 5,000. And what happens in this story, I think, it's, uh, I think it's in Matthew 14, if you want to look it up. I'm just going to tell you the story. But John the Baptist is beheaded um, by the, the false king of Israel. And Jesus hears this, and it says that Jesus went off to try to find a quiet place. And, you know, we don't always get an emotional context for the stories in Scripture, but we, it's not too hard for us to read in what's going on there. Because John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. They're six months apart. They most likely, they grew up together. There's a strong uh, affinity and affection between these two cousins. And so when Jesus finds out that his cousin has been beheaded, that he's been murdered because of this king who's also out after him, you can imagine that that's a moment where Jesus says, I I need, to, I, need, I need some time. I got I to gotta step away. You see, sometimes we're so desperate to affirm the divinity of Jesus that we never allow him as humanity because we believe what we're called to is a position where we remove our emotional posture, where we have to cut out all of these things in order to be perfect. But Jesus, in his humanity and his divinity, recognizes a very deep and powerful moment in his story and the story of his beloved. And he says, I, I, I've got to, I, I have to step away. And so Jesus begins to kind of walk out into the wilderness to take some time to come back to God and to, and to invite God to speak to him anew. And what happens? 5,000 men follow him with their wives and their kids. And it says, Jesus turns around and he has compassion upon them. 
But even then you can tell he's still so emotionally depleted because he gathers his disciples and he says, you go feed them. You realize it isn't even Jesus that does the miracle? He empowers his friends to go and to feed the 5,000. And when everybody's fed, then Jesus gets in a boat and he goes away and he finds that time to reconnect with the Lord. And that's so powerful to me because it, it, it challenges even, I think, that guardedness that leads us into isolation. Because Jesus knew what he needed in the moment, but he was not willing to fight so much for what he knew he needed in the moment that it would be at the expense of having compassion on other people because he knew it was gonna come. And yes, he couldn't be fully present maybe in that moment with those 5,000 people, but he was able to empower his friends to say, can you, guys, can you go do this, please? Like, I'm gonna empower you to go and to do this thing. And then Jesus knew that his time was coming. And so for Jesus, whether it was that preemptive discipline of seeking solitude with the Lord to be reminded of his belovedness, or it was recognizing in the moment as he's maneuvering through life that sometimes he's gonna need to step away because of the, overwhelm, the overwhelming nature of the world, he practiced both of those things. And I think this is so important to recognize though. Jesus did not pray so that he could be more productive. Jesus did not pray, Jesus did not practice the presence of God for the sake of the mission. God, his time with God was not a function to the bigger thing. Jesus said that the intimacy that he has with God, that's the thing, that's the purpose. And Jesus' actions in the world, his mission, that was the fruit of his prayer life. Everything that Jesus did was, the, was the, the extra sauce that comes with intimacy with God. And it's because he chose to spend that time in stillness and silence and solitude before the Lord that he was capable of doing what he did. And so the measure of whether we have spent time in isolation or solitude is in how we show up for other people. Let me put it more bluntly. If you come out of alone time and you don't love other people better, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you know, again, as Christians, when we speak of self-care, it's self-care to what end? To massage our egos, to make ourselves feel better? Or is it actually so that we can do what we're called to do? To love God, to love others, and to love self. We need that trajectory as followers of Jesus to know what it is that we're working towards. Because it's not just about that moment. It's not about protection. It's not about you know, clinging to other people in desperation, just trying to find some semblance of identity. It's about being able to show up to our own lives to do what God's called us to do. I think lonely people are either manipulative or overprotective. When we're, when we're lonely, when we are overwhelmed by the absence of a presence in our lives, we become manipulative in our relationships and we begin to kind of wheedle out of other people the love that we need and the affirmation we need. Or we become overprotective and we do that isolating thing where we close off our hearts to the people that God has placed within our lives. Because isolation is defined by the absence of others. To, it's, it, isolation is always about pulling away. It's about moving into the negative. But I'm guaranteeing you this. Whatever you are looking for in life, you will not find it in isolation. 
I promise you, you will not find the answers. You will not find identity. You will certainly never find intimacy in isolation. And you will not find those things in being slothful and just checking out of your own life physically. And you're certainly not going to find those answers in distraction, in continuing to skip across the surface of the lake. Yet we continually run back to those counterfeit forms of quiet consent, thinking that it's, this time it's going to work. But people who spend time in stillness and silence and solitude when they really do the work to be present to God, to allow him to remind us of our belovedness, begin to see our relationships with other people as a gift to be cultivated. You see, stillness and silence and solitude, they're not defined by the absence of other people, the absence of presence. These are postures that are defined by being in deference to the Lord. Stillness and silence and solitude, they're not reactionary against the chaos of their life. They're choosing to see the true depth and beauty of the life that God has gifted us with. I think the beauty of that then is that we begin to take quiet consent with us, whether we're alone or we're in a crowd, so that we can always incline our ears to hear God speak. Isolation only has one agenda, to remove you from other people, but solitude has the beauty of the, like the possibility of solitude means that you can choose into solitude with God in the midst of the multitude. You can choose stillness in the chaos of everyday life. It's not that we only find God when we go into a quiet place and then we step out into the chaos of the world where God is not present, but that we actually begin to believe that God is present to us at all times in that. And when we begin to believe that, when we practice healthy stillness and silence and solitude, we can begin to incline our ears to hear God speak at every moment in our lives. To be, to be you know, in the packed subway or wherever it might be, to be sitting at your desk at work or to be in an argument with your friends or to be at the dinner table with your family and go, Lord, who am I? Oh, yes, I'm your beloved. Nothing more, nothing less. And when we choose to engage with God there, then we're able to engage with others, to engage with the world out of love and compassion. And so we're going to practice uh, silence and stillness and solitude here just for a moment. And I want to give you just a couple tips before we do this. Y'all super stoked on this? Yeah, silence! Woo! Let the demons speak! <laughs> Voices of darkness! Number one, this is true of any spiritual discipline. Showing up is success, okay? So for all y'all Enneagrams, one, three, eight, where it becomes a little bit more about tasks to be accomplished, if you've showed up, you're successful. But you've got to give yourself time to adjust to silence, to stillness, to solitude, because it's not going to come easy. It shouldn't become easy. If it was easy, it wouldn't be a discipline. Number two, you need to know what works for you. If you can hone in on that center of intelligence, am I first and foremost a, a mind person? Do I think my way into the world? Am I a heart person? Do I feel my way into the world? Am I a, a, a gut person? Do I intuit my way through the world? The more you know that, the better that you can craft exactly what silence or stillness or solitude is going to look like for you. You know, for some people, it's an anchor word. You know, I've spoken about this many times before, just having a single word that you can come back to that keeps you in the presence of the Lord. 
Maybe it's just his name. Maybe it's just saying, here I am. Just a little word or a phrase that keeps you present in that moment. Maybe it's an image. You know, I've spoken about the beauty of using icons to kind of help us to stay present to the Lord. Um, Number three, practice relinquishment. A lot of times when we enter into these kinds of disciplines, we spend most of our time fighting all of the thoughts and the feelings that come up. But if you're spending all of your time like looking behind you and fighting against all these things, you're spending less time focusing on Jesus. And so what you do is you say, my thoughts and my feelings are no longer my enemies. They're part of who I am. They're there. And I'm actually going to welcome them in as they come, and then I'm going to lay them at his feet. And I'm going to allow him to do the fighting for me. Because it's not about controlling the narrative. It's not about just fighting. It's not about trying to have control. It's about relinquishment. But handing them over to Jesus and surrender and seeing what happens. And take your time. Maybe most of your discipline of being silent before the Lord is just handing him thought after thought after thought or feeling after feeling after feeling. But guess what? That's okay. That's blessed. That's not the thing that you do in order to get to the good stuff. That is the good stuff. And I'd say finally this. I think, you know, in our modern era, there is a a renaissance of practicing meditation and all this. And I think that that's wonderful. But as I said, as Christians, we need trajectory. The end goal itself is not for us just to be empty. We're not trying to get ourselves to be a blank canvas. It's not about us just kind of quieting within ourselves. But it's like the psalmist said, like a weaned child with its mother. That's how I'm posturing myself because it's about being with him. Okay, so the first thing, go ahead and put your body in a position that you can hold for a little while. You're going to notice that maybe you're tensed up, you're folding your arms, your shoulders are rolled forward, you're, you're doing that thing with your leg, whatever it might be. Put yourself in a position that you can hold for a while. And it's helpful for it to be a position of consent, to have your hands open, to have your chest open in this posture of reception, that you're going to receive the presence of God. And it, you know, one of the things I find even helpful is just to kind of take an inventory of your body. Where are you holding tension? Where are you too tight? Where are you closed off without realizing it? And just to open up. The second thing I would encourage you to is to learn how to breathe, to practice conscious breathing. Very helpful. I think it's very easy that you draw in through your nose on a three count. You hold it in your chest or in your belly without closing off your throat for a three count. And then you just breathe out through your nose and your mouth for a three count. Very simple. So you just go in, two, three, hold, two, three, out, two, three. And what this does is it helps you to become more attentive to your body. So again, it's not about sloth. It's about stillness. And then finally, as I said, just to practice handing over those thoughts and feelings to Jesus as part of the discipline and not the way in which you get to it. So... I'm going to pray, and we're just going to take a few moments uh, to sit in stillness. And just observe yourself. Give yourself grace. Let yourself be present in it and see what God wants to do. Um, So, Father, we're here. We are present to you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to quiet our minds so that we might participate in silence.
We invite you to bring shalom peace upon our bodies so that we might be still and know that you are Lord. And we invite you to bring compassion upon our hearts so that we might truly step into solitude. We thank you, Almighty Father. We thank you, Jesus, God the Son, our Savior and our friend, 
We thank you, Holy Spirit, giver of life, advocate. Thank you that you call us back to you. You call us home to be reminded of who we truly are. And you also challenge us to go out and to live out our belovedness in the way that we love you from moment to moment, in the way that we love other people from moment to moment, and in the way we truly love ourselves. We confess to you all the times that we have entered into the counterfeit of these things that have removed us from living our own lives. Whether it's endless distraction or sloth or isolation. Lord, we recognize that these things do not work because they do not help us to live into love, but they are motivated by fear and numbing. Teach us, Lord, teach us how to practice quiet consent to you from moment to moment. We pray these things in the strong and the beautiful name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me. I wish I knew the percentage of how much it is that God works out in us when we practice quiet consent. I, I, don't, I want to say 90%, but I, that, I don't know, maybe that's true. Kristen Blommel's giving me a big nod. Yeah, that sounds about right. I recognize in my own life the time where I just take five minutes at the beginning of the day and quietly consent to the Lord that when it comes to the frustrating phone call at 3 p.m. or it comes to the email that I haven't answered for two weeks because I'm slothful or whatever it is, I'm more present, I'm more loving, I'm more compassionate. You know, and that's the goal. And so I want to lead us into worship uh, by reading... Uh, once again uh, from our blessed patron, St. Henry Nouwen. And I want to invite you to close your eyes and I want you to listen to this as a prayer to see what are the, the words or the phrases the Lord's going, ah, yes, that, that's, that's it. That's it right there. Solitude is the way in which we grow into the realization that where we are most alone, we are most loved by God. It is a quality of heart, an inner quality that helps us to accept our aloneness lovingly as a gift from God. In that place, our activities become activities done for the other. If we accept our aloneness as a gift from God and convert it into deep solitude, then out of that solitude, we can reach out to other people. We can come together in community because we don't cling to one another out of loneliness. We don't use or manipulate one another. Rather, we bow to one another's solitude. We recognize one another as people who are called by the same God. If I find God in my solitude and you find God in your solitude, then the same God calls us together and we can become friends. We can form a community. We can sustain a marriage. We can be together without destroying each other by clinging to each other. That's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.